Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant family. Uh, yeah, I knew you were out there. Today is uh, Memorial Day, the beginning actually of Memorial Day weekend. Uh, tomorrow, many of you will take the day off. Who's got the day off tomorrow? Watermelon, burgers, stay. Actually, ribeye if you're in the club. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, but I want to take a few moments now to just to do what Memorial Day was originally designed to do, which is to remember. We have several national holidays that reflect gratitude for our military, for men and women who serve abroad and around the world and here at home as well uh, to protect our freedoms. We are grateful for that. Uh, we talk a lot about the appropriate kind of relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. I think it's important for the church of the living God to, to keep those realms separate, but at the same time, it is not a conflict of interest to be a follower of Jesus and to love the nation. Uh, in which you find yourself, and more appropriately still, to be greatly appreciative for those who gave their lives. And some of you uh, lost a loved one in this way. That really is what Memorial Day is about. There are other holidays where we thank people who are still alive for their service, but Memorial Day is when we simply remember. And in addition to remembering, we thank those of you who gave that loved one, that father, that grandfather, that husband, that child, perhaps. And whether it was on the field of battle or whether after that field of battle they were able, by God's grace, to live a long and, and fulfilled life and died then of natural causes or whether they succumbed to the struggles of PTSD, however you have lost that loved one, we remember them today. And we thank them. And we thank you for giving what President Lincoln a century and a half ago called the last full measure of devotion. And in recognition for that, would you join me in just a moment of silence on behalf of the fallen? Father, we thank you for a moment of remembrance. We know that while absolutely nothing and no one is to come above you, just as we can love our neighbor, we can appreciate and be thankful. And today, we remember those who have given everything to the extent that they're no longer here with us. And we pray comfort to those they've left behind that are no doubt just scattered throughout this auditorium in front of me. Many of those stories I am aware of. Some of them I'm not. You, Lord, know every single one of them. And so we pray. We ask you, Father, to be with those who continue to serve. For those who have served, we tend to think of soldiers and airmen and sailors and Marines as the strongest among us. And Father, certainly they are pictures of strength, and we are grateful for their unflinching defense of this freedom that we enjoy and yet at the same time, in so many instances when their nation has called them to endure, the very things the nation calls them to endure 
exposes them to vulnerabilities that, Lord, many of us can't possibly fathom. And so, Father, we just pray for the comfort of your Holy Spirit today, the remembrance, the solemn pride, appropriate amount of pride that, that should be given and, th and thought about on a day like today. Bring them comfort as they gather with their families tomorrow, Lord. And thank you again for the opportunities that you give us uh, to simply remember. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before I get started, guys, uh, we have a breakfast coming up. It's our quarterly men's breakfast. It's in the great room on Saturday, 8 a.m. I'm looking forward to being there. I hope you will join me. Pastor Jack Tennant uh, leads these efforts uh, on a quarterly basis. There's going to be some time in the Word. There's going to be prayer. There's going to be opportunities for encouragement. And if you're new to the Covenant family, this is actually a really great way to get connected with some other guys. So I invite you wholeheartedly into that. Uh, it's not, well, I don't want to join a small group and be sharing my feelings or anything. It's not like that. Uh, I promise. It's just good. You know, I started to rattle off the menu, but I don't want to make a promise that I can't keep. I'm not the one cooking, but I'll tell you, every single time I've ever been, it's been good. Uh, so please get registered if you can. There was an email that went out on Friday. Uh, that'll let us know how many uh, we need to expect. And uh, we won't, this will be the last one of these we do for the rest of the summer. So you don't want to miss this time of just being together. Again, 8 o'clock by 10 o'clock at the latest, you are out of here and on with your day. Uh, and I hope to see you there. So we're in the middle of a series called Turn. We've been moving through the Minor Prophets, uh, looking and studying the various ways that God calls us to repent. And we land today on a prophet that's unique, really, among all of the others. I mean, they, they all have uniqueness in some way. But, but Habakkuk is unique in, in a really kind of extraordinary way because it asks a question that, that all of us really seldom ask out loud or in public, but I would imagine most of us have asked it in our minds or in our prayer closets, and it goes something like this, God, what are you doing? All right? I mean, we, we, we've been almost been, been programmed by a church culture never to utter such a thing out loud, but tell me you haven't at least thought about it. Tell me you haven't at least cried out in the privacy of your own closet when nobody else was around and you knew at that moment you, you kind of come to this conclusion, well, the Lord already knows my mind, so if I don't say it, I'm lying. So I may as well just get it out there. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? God, I don't understand. I think one of the reasons that we don't make those questions public sometimes is because of an unbalanced unhealthy teaching that has sometimes taken root in churches. And that teaching goes something like this, that a, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, I mean, if you're really like really strong in your faith, you will never have doubts. Problem is, we do have doubts. We can't stop them. They, they just come. They, they pop up all the time, but because so many of us have been conditioned, maybe it was early like Sunday school class or a small group or just sort of the general environment of, of Christian culture, and, and so we do have doubts. There's a, there's a shame culture around doubt in way, way too many churches that I'm kind of hoping to obliterate today. I know that's a bit of an aspiration, but I'm going to try to do it. But because of that culture, we're actually encouraged to, to hide those doubts rather than uncover them. But here's the problem with hiding any kind of weakness like that. When you cover it up, you leave it unresolved. 
And it just stays there. And it just sort of festers. It's like a sore that gets infected. And you decide, I'll just put a Band-Aid on it. I'll just put a sock over it. I'll just rub some dirt in it. I'll just ignore it. Next thing you know, there's this big, thick red streak making its way to your heart. Then you're in the ER. Why is that? Because you covered up something that should have been dealt with. And you leave it unresolved. And so your doubt then is unable to stretch you, to grow you. In this way, we treat doubt a lot like we treat anxiety. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. And Paul said, don't be anxious for, for anything. And what happens is we, we take those New Testament encouragements, which is what they are. All right, it's, it's, the, it's God saying to you and to me, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to be wound up tied in a banjo string all the time. Let me invite you into something better, but what we've done instead of, instead of taking it with that posture is we've turned it into a really strict command. Well, I'm feeling anxiety. Well, you're not supposed to feel anxiety. You're a Christian. You're not supposed to worry. You're a Christian. And then what happens? Well, I feel anxiety, but I know that's what I'm going to hear, so I bury anxiety. And you know what happens when you bury anxiety? Same thing that happens when you grow pot. It grows. It's bigger. Not that I would know anything about that, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you, that's what happens. When you bury this stuff, it gets, it get you, the deeper you bury it, the larger it grows until the cycle continues. I've got a good friend named Curtis Chang who just has finished a book that came out last week called The Anxiety Opportunity. And he, he talks about trying to remove the shame around anxiety. And, it, and, and as a result, he invites us through the book to leverage our anxieties in a way that grows our faith, which was the original point of the New Testament on this subject to begin with. Not to bury it deep and pretend it's not there on the one hand, not to wallow in it on the other, but to leverage it for the glory of God and for your own spiritual growth. But we don't know how to do that because we've put a lot of shame on top of that. Doubt is another one of those emotions that has been shamed within the body of Christ. And kind of like anxiety, when you shame something People hide it, and then eventually it turns into outright unbelief. So, it, so what do we do about that, given where we are? Well, I love G.K. Chesterton's response to this more than a century ago. He said, in dealing with the asserter of doubt, when somebody goes, I don't know if that's true. I even doubt. We had some questions. Our question series starts in July. One of them was, how do I know that God exists? One of them actually came from a child, which I think was an amazing question. Is it okay for me to ask if God exists? The short answer is yes. It's perfectly fine. If you worship a God you can't question, then you don't worship a very powerful God. Okay? So yeah, of course, those questions are fine. God created us with, with minds as, as thinking people. Chesterton says when you're dealing with that, it is not the right method to tell him to stop doubting. It is rather the right method to tell him to go on doubting, to doubt a little more, to doubt every day newer and wilder things about the universe until at last, by some strange enlightenment, he may begin to doubt himself. That sounds like a Taylor Swift song, doesn't it? That one did me wrong, and that one did me wrong, and that one did me wrong, and that one minute. Girl, don't you think maybe it's you? Like, you seem to be the only common denominator in this. That, that's kind of the process it would seem that, that Habakkuk is, is going to tell us about, that Chesterton describes here, that process of doubt followed by continued doubt, followed by deeper doubt is actually a process that's reflected in Scripture in many places, but we don't see it any more blatantly than we see it in Habakkuk. And it's what sets this prophet apart from the other 11. This isn't so much 
like the other 11, a, a, a prophecy uttered on behalf of God to a specific group of people. It's actually a dialogue between the prophet and his God. So when we read Habakkuk, we're not reading a direct sermon to a group of people that a prophet is speaking. Instead, what we're doing is we're peering over the shoulder of one of God's messengers. And you know what we get to see? Completely unedited, director's cut doubt in the heart of a prophet. And we get to see how he deals with it. And so because this particular prophecy has an unusual approach and structure, so will this message. The call to repent from unbelief to faith, that's the invitation today, includes refusing to simply bury doubt, just cover it up. It also requires that we live with unresolved doubt. All right? We like clarity. I like clarity. We like resolution. Habakkuk teaches us, you know what? Sometimes you're going to have to live without resolve around certain things. In fact, God's going to demand that of you because it's the very thing that will help you eventually become everything that he wants you to be. That's what we're about to learn. Now, these, these words were, were uttered, however, in a context around 609 B.C. So here's what's going on in world history as Habakkuk has this struggle. We're roughly a decade out from the moment that the Babylonians will invade the nation of Judah. And Judah is under the reign of a king named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah. Josiah initiated both civic and religious reforms. There was a national revival under him. God's people turned back to God. Israel was strengthened. And then Josiah passes from the scene. Jehoiakim, his son, comes on the scene, and he is absolutely nothing like his father. He is a wicked king, both personally and politically. Personally, it's about as wicked as it gets. I know that we live in a day and an age where there's all kinds of confusion around gender and sexuality and all these other kinds of things. Listen, our nation ain't facing nothing right now compared to a king who committed incest with his own mama. I don't care what your sexual ethic is. That's just sick. All right? That's, that's the measure of his wickedness. He also slept with one of his daughter-in-laws. He was um, persecuting of God's prophets. He murdered other men in order to take their wives. His political policies were equally wicked, but perhaps the most significant evidence of his cold heart was reflected in his treatment of another prophet active at this time that you know probably well if you know the scriptures, a man named Jeremiah. And so we see, in, if you look at Jeremiah, you see this great amount of literature in Jeremiah as, as well as wider rabbinical literature that was written around that same time that describes the reign of Jehoiakim as that of a completely wicked, godless tyrant. Habakkuk is watching all this happen. And this prophecy is a reflection of his struggle with it. Why is this happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? Now, in the modern world... Uh, philosophers of religion have a term for this. They call it theodicy. Theodicy is an attempt to explain the actions of a God who says he is good in view of the obvious existence of evil, to explain God's actions in light of the problem of evil. The problem of evil, succinctly put, goes like this. God says that he is both good and powerful, but if both of those are true, why is there evil in the world? Because it seems to my finite human mind that if God were good, evil wouldn't exist. So because evil exists, he's either good, but he's not powerful enough to take care of it, or even worse, he's powerful enough to deal with it, but he's not good because he doesn't care. 
So how do we answer those questions? How do we, how do we reckon with the, the problem of evil? And for Habakkuk, like so many of us, when we encounter difficulty or, or persecution or suffering, this isn't some ivory, like he's not at UC Berkeley trying to figure this out. This is real life stuff. So if you've ever struggled like this, if you struggle right now, you are not alone. We find in these three short chapters a prophet's way of processing all of this, trying to make sense out of it, failing miserably in trying to make sense out of it. And we see two very distinct cycles of struggle that we can identify with and learn from. So let's, let's take these in turn, starting with a cycle of lament. That's cycle one, chapter one, verse two. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? You ever felt like saying that before but thought maybe you couldn't? Oh, wait a minute, a real believer would never say that. A prophet just said it. Where are you? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. It's an analysis by the prophet of what's happening and transpiring in his own nation. Kind of like us. We look around sometimes and we see things about our own culture and even our own nation that, man, I just, I wish that wasn't like that. I wish people wouldn't think like this. I wish this wasn't something that was blessed. I, I am concerned for my children. I mean, and like Habakkuk, because he, he doesn't hate his place of being, where he lives. He loves it, but because he loves it, this breaks his heart. People are turning against each other to the extent that they're violent toward each other. The, the enemies of Israel are going to leverage that polarization. That sounds like it might be a current day threat, doesn't it? Systemic injustice prevails because people charged with justice are not executing justice. And the result, Habakkuk says, is everywhere I look, I see evil. All the time. Turn on the news, I pick up a paper, I scroll through social media, and Lord, it just seems like you are sitting up there. Maybe Thomas Jefferson was right. Maybe deism is the way to think about you. Maybe you are just that grand watchmaker who wound this universe up, and now you're just sitting back watching it go on like some kind of passive tyrant. Because God, that's what it seems like. That's what it seems like. Because I've addressed this with you over and over again, and all I hear from heaven is silence. This existential crisis is a result of a disconnect between the prophet's own mind, how he thinks about the goodness of God, how he thinks it should look in the world, and how that world actually looks. There's a gap in his mind. And it causes him to question the goodness of God. Where are you? How can you just stand idly by while this happens? You ever been there? Listen to the Lord's response beginning in verse 5. He says to the prophet, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Now, that's a very poetic way to go. Well, I would explain it to you, but you're too stupid. For behold, then he goes on, 
I am, let me prove to you how dumb you really are, because you're not going to get this either. It's going to make you even more enraged. I am raising up the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, and then he's going to go on in the rest of the chapter to describe just graphic destruction that Babylon will bring with them when their march finally finds its way to Judah. So here's, here's the context. Habakkuk, Lord, I see all this evil. Are you ever going to do anything about this evil in my nation? And the Lord says, yeah. You ever heard of the Chaldeans? The Babylonians? Aren't they the Taliban of the ancient world? Yeah, they pretty much are. You've caught wind of their growing reputation as they conquered nation after nation of people and enslaved their captives. You've heard about them stacking pyramids of human heads at the entryway to every city they conquer? Yeah, I'm sending them. And they will execute my justice. So Habakkuk says, where's the justice? And God says, it's coming. You see it over there? There it comes. And Habakkuk is now more unsatisfied than he was in the beginning. You all right? Are you starting to see what Chesterton was talking about? It started with a little bit of doubt, and then it got worse before it got better. I'm trying to plumb the depths of what God is doing. Is that, does that sound like a familiar conversation in your own mind or maybe in your own prayer life? Who has found themselves in a situation where they question God's motives, God's plans, maybe even his character, only to have him pull back the curtain and reveal something to you that didn't resolve it, it actually just made it worse. Here's what's going on. Yeah, let me pull back. I'm not going to let you see the whole tapestry just yet because your mind would literally explode. But, but I'm going to, yeah, here, here's what's going on. Whoa, wait, wait. That presents a more horrible dilemma than the one I started with. Well, that leads to cycle two. Habakkuk has done what Chesterton described. He went deeper. He is doubting more wildly. God honors that by letting him have a second round. So Habakkuk's response comes in verse 13 of chapter 1. You, speaking of the Lord, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and to look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? And You notice how the, the accusation is still the same? You are unjust. No, I'm not. I'm going to bring justice. By using who? The Babylonians. That's unjust. He's stuck inside his own head. That's what's going on here. Aren't you going to do something about this evil? Yes. This is what I'm going to do. Well, why are you doing that? So in the first cycle, Habakkuk suspected God to just be passive and inactive and unconcerned. Now he suspects, man, God may just be cruel and capricious. But belief in a God with that kind of character is the same thing as unbelief. And the reason for that is because that God actually does not exist though he may seem that way to you and to me sometimes. And we, we live in a culture ourselves that often makes the same assumptions as the prophet because we confuse perception with reality. If I feel it, then it naturally must be real. If I think it, then it naturally must be true. And, and the most absurd way to live out that kind of thinking is when this infinite person, a finite person, I'm limited to space. I can only be in one place at one time. I'm limited to time. I can't go back in time. I can't go forward in time. Much as I would like a DeLorean, it won't work, right? I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm confounded to this place. And I'm limited in my knowledge. 
would presume to be able to understand, know, and always agree with the mind of my infinite creator in relation to all of those other things. Isaiah reminds us of this in Isaiah 55 and verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. By the way, that, the purpose of that text is not for you to go preaching at somebody else that has doubt. It's for you and me to, to internalize that when we have doubts of my own. Oh, yeah, it's just that sudden reminder. Oh, yeah, I have a creator. He's smarter than me. I don't have all this figured out. I would like some answers. He may choose to give them to me. He may not choose to give them to me. Either way, I will never understand that. All right. He asked Job in the middle of Job's suffering. I don't know that anybody in this room has ever suffered the way Job did. And Job finally gets to a point where he, he crosses a line. People are so, I don't want to question God. I don't want to be angry with God. I'm afraid I'm going to cross the line. Well, if you do, he'll let you know. He'll let you know. He let Job know. Job crossed the line, and then all of a sudden, there's been all this, all this forbearance and all this listening and, and all this coming down and suffering alongside, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Lord speaks, and he says, who is this who darkens my wisdom by words without knowledge? Who, well, who, who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Oh, that's right. You didn't exist yet. How'd you come into being? I created you. So with that reality in view, it, it should surprise none of us that in this exchange, we find a man saying, God, what are you doing? And God says, you wouldn't believe if I told you. And Habakkuk says, but I want to know. And then God tells him, and then Habakkuk says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. But I'll bet he's not the only person who's ever been there. I know that, in fact. Because I've been there. I'm going to venture a guess that many of you have been there. What are you doing? I don't believe this. Then comes God's response to cycle two. This is chapter two, verse three. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, you're on my time here, buddy, not yours. This doesn't happen when you get good and ready for it to happen. It happens when I get good and ready for it to happen. My, my timing and methods are not merely different from yours. They are infinitely better. And so the most important question here isn't, what is God doing? The most important question in moments like this is, do I trust him? Do I trust him? If I have to always understand and always agree with somebody, that's a sign that I don't trust that person. And that's also true in my relationship with God. If I have to always understand and always agree with an infinite being who created me, then I don't trust him. Moments of confusion and doubt are there to build your trust. That's what they're there for. Most important question, do I trust him? God answers that question in verse 4 with a powerful statement. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So here's what we learned. Doubt is a normal part of any faith that is growing. But when you move from doubt, confusion, and you actually start to question the character of God, well, that's not faith anymore. 
Now you've tipped the scales into something called pride. Pride is thinking too highly of yourself. And in this case, that pride has led you, me sometimes, to think ourselves able as a finite being to possess enough knowledge to judge the actions and character of the infinite. And Scripture is full of warnings about pride, isn't it? Peter tells us God opposes the proud, but he exalts, which means he lifts up, he supports, he, he carries the humble. Do you trust him? Yes. Then he will lift you up, he will carry you, he will support you. And one of the ways he does that is by making you righteous. And you know someone is righteous, God tells the prophet here, by their faith. Not blind loyalty that never questions or tries to bury our doubts. Not some brain-dead, syrupy spirituality that never admits confusion or doubt, but faith, the belief that my creator is good. What I'm going through right now may be highly confusing. It may be excruciating, but my God is good. And his plans for me are ultimately good. The just shall live by faith. Those words sound familiar? They should. That's the theme that has guided God's people for the past 2,600 years. Paul would leverage it when he reminded the church at Rome by quoting this verse in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. 1,500 years after that moment, there'd be a young monk named Martin Luther who would find this theme again during one of the darkest and most oppressive times in the church's history, a time when the church itself was the oppressor. And he would use Habakkuk's words quoted by Paul in the 16th century as a light to light a fire that would cover all of Europe with the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteous, the just shall live by faith. And what we're reading here is the seminal moment of this phrase when it comes to be. Habakkuk will respond as well. Chapter 3, verse 18. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Summarized, I'm going to trust you. I don't get it. I'm more confused now. I have dug into deeper and even more wilder forms of doubt, and, and this is how I've come out. I trust you. I trust your heart. And I'm going to do it with joy. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. I don't have to figure everything out. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to agree with everything that happens in my life, in my world, everything around me. I have to trust, and I have to live in joy even as I trust. That's the message of Habakkuk. So let me give you two lessons that come out of this. The first one is this. It really is okay for you to question God. He's a big boy. He can handle it. He is not. It's a really thin-skinned individual that cannot handle a hard, critical question. God is not afraid of your questions. Bring them. Bring them. I mean, if you, if for one thing, if you never have a question, then you've got a pretty low view of your creator. Because what you're assuming by never having a question is that you got this all figured out. You, you can explain him. Some of you have been in small group with people like that, and they annoy the dog mess out of you, don't they? Yeah. Y'all, I need to struggle. I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with that. And immediately there's that person. Well, what you need to do is, y'all have Pastor Joel's permission next time that happens to look at that person and say, Pastor Joel said I could tell you to shut up. 
Yeah, because that, that doesn't help anybody. Well, what you need to do, well, here's what's going on. Well, here's what's going on. Sometimes the best thing in the world, we taught our guys in the pastoral residency, the best thing a pastor can say is nothing, and the second best thing a pastor can say is, I don't know. Followed by, I'm so sorry. Followed by, I love you. Followed by, I'm praying for you. Followed by long periods of just sitting in it with them. Being a presence with them. Loving them through it. That, that's so often what we have to do. Otherwise, again, it, it betrays a low view of the Creator. It doesn't mean you can't have an apologetic. It doesn't mean you should never answer a question. So we get that too in our world. People are just like, I'm giving up on the Christian faith. Why? Well, because, because I, I've got this question and, and nobody's ever dealt with it before. Well, what's the question? And they'll ask it. And I have to, I have to keep my poker face up and, and prevent myself in my own depravity from saying, well, there's been about a thousand books written about that dummy. Right? There's plenty of shoulders for you to stand on here. So don't, don't just give up, but admit the struggle. Work through the struggle. So it doesn't mean you never have a question. It does mean you approach all of this with humility. So if you have questions, you bring them and, and we ponder them together as the body of Christ while accepting that many, maybe even most, won't get an answer until you get to heaven. The author of Hebrews tells us that faith is, is two things. Two things. It's the assurance of what we hope for. All right? There's a sense that I can believe even though I don't see how. And it is secondly the conviction of things I don't see. No one has seen God at any time. He exists. How do I know? Well, there's a lot of evidences for that, but ultimately it comes down to faith, the things that I don't fully understand and, and comprehend. So, so faith is assurance of things that I don't quite get and a conviction of things that I can't see, which means if, if faith doesn't come with questions, it's not real. It's not. God's own prophets. This is exhibit A, Habakkuk didn't often understand the what or the why of his actions, and they ended their prophecy the same way they started, just as confused as they were in the beginning, maybe even more so. So if you don't have answers to the what or the why either, it's all right. It's okay. But now, don't just hang on to that one without hanging on to this other lesson. Faith is not primarily about understanding. Now, God has revealed himself to us in his word. We are to take him at his word. We, the, the way you worship an idol is to depart from the scripture's language about how God has revealed himself. There are things we can and should know and have confidence in. There's a whole swath of things that we will never know. And faith isn't primarily about seeking to understand those things. Faith is primarily about whether or not I trust the heart of God. So a little inside story that our elders have given me permission to, to share with you. Several months ago, we had an issue come before us, and it wasn't anything earth-shattering. 
wasn't anything that like the whole fate of the church rested on it, but it also was not an unimportant issue, and it was not one of those issues where there was a whole lot of nuance or we could go, okay, here's side A and side B, and we'll, we'll, let's, let's figure out if we can synthesize this into a side C. It just, there was just no way to do that. It was either going to be A or it was going to be B. Y'all got it? Okay, and so when we discussed it for about an hour, five of us were on side A, four of us were on side B. Okay, you got the picture? Now, consensus decision-making doesn't require unanimity, okay? But if we have a 5-4 decision, just to give you a little inside track on our pastors, we don't move because we're not Supreme Court. We're the church of the living God. We're more important, okay? And by the way, you've seen how those 5-4 decisions go down. It just further divides the nation, right? We're not going to divide God's people, okay? So it was 5-4. In favor of side A, and I was on side A. I was absolutely convinced in my own mind, and I still am. Right? So, so here's what we did. The, the guys, the four guys that were on side B, they said, Pastor, why don't you, why don't you make your case in writing to us? Let's take, a, let's take a month, maybe two, and let's consider it. So I did. I think to this day they're sorry they asked me to do that because... Because my position papers are kind of like my sermons. Some of y'all sitting there right now going, when's he going to hush? I want to go eat watermelon. Right? So, so I, I made it. I made it stout. I made it forceful. I guarantee you, if, if I could pull back the curtain and tell you what this was and let you read the paper, all of you would be fully convinced. <laughs> you, you just, I, I got this figured out. I got it figured out. About a month later, I was in Texas with 12, 11 of my best friends in ministry and my mentor. We had gotten done with a couple of days right at the first of the year. Every year, Bob calls us together. He pours into us. You know, for one thing, it's just nice at my age to have somebody in their 60s call me a young man. I go to Texas just so somebody will call me young, right? And, and so that was really cool. Just, but he does. He just kind of pours into his sons in ministry. And so we just kind of sit there and, and soak it up, just all that wisdom and everything else. So all of that was done. We're at, a, we're at a, a closed off room all by ourselves, not out in public, but in this little Italian restaurant right across the street from the church where we had met in Fort Worth. So it's private. We're 2,000 miles away. There's a bunch of pastors. It's a safe environment for me. So I just kind of launch in and I go, guys, we got something we're dealing with right now. I want to tell you about it. And I just laid it all out. And in about 10 minutes or so, I laid out what I had said in that position paper, thinking probably what they're going to help me do is say this in a way that'll convince the other four guys of how dense they are. And then, did you know, why are y'all laughing? Like, all 11 guys and my big brother mentor in ministry looked at me and told me I was wrong. We went from 5-4 to a completely unanimous decision. In opposition. To, I mean, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. Y'all think I'm kidding. I really do. I really do. But you know what? We still haven't moved. Here's why. 
question is not whether I agree. The question is not whether I understand. The question is, do I trust the hearts of the men that are sitting around that table with me in conference room 432? That's the question, and I do. I do trust their hearts, even when we don't agree. And because of that, we get to shepherd together. Right? That's what it's it's not about, well, until we get this, until we get that, we got to figure this out, or we can't, we can't, we can't what? We can't trust each other. Most of our relationships, that's the issue. It's not whether I agree, it's not even whether I understand, it's whether I trust the heart of the other person. We make that mistake with each other, and we make that mistake big time with God. All right. Now, see, those guys are fallen. All of us, all nine of us are fallen men. I mean, especially those four that don't agree with me, but you know what I'm saying? Like, but I trust their heart. If I can trust fallen men, why can't I trust God? Even when I don't understand? Even when I don't agree, even when I don't, as I've heard so many people say before, I, and I trust his plan even though I don't like it. Hey, that's perfectly honest. That's perfectly honest. But that's the question of Habakkuk. Not do you understand, not do you agree, but on this Memorial Day weekend, do you trust his heart? Do you trust his kind intention towards you? Now, Here's where the hard part starts. In a few minutes, we sing a song, we give an offering, we dismiss, we go out to get ready to eat watermelon, and, and that's where the hard part's going to start. And I'm going to tell you why. Because this story is easy to break apart, to figure out, to analyze. You know why? Because it's over. It's done. It's, it's got an end point. We, we can look at the back of the book, figure out how it turns out, and we go, oh, well, of course he should have had more faith, but right now... Everybody in this room is inside his or her own Habakkuk story. And God is moving and active in your life, sometimes in ways that you don't understand, for some of you in excruciatingly painful ways, and you find yourself right in the middle of a story just like his, only it's not finished yet. So you can't flip to the end and figure out how all this is going to happen. Here's what he's calling you to do in that moment. To keep doing the right thing our covenant women heard my wife's testimony back in january of a long process of trying to understand what is god doing in her life in my life in our married life in our family's life in our the life of our ministry and just all kinds of things that would happen that wouldn't seem to make sense i don't have time to go into all of it but those of you that were there that back in that women's meeting in january you heard the story about a suddenly interrupted trip to africa that never would be you heard about subsequent struggles with our family. You heard about us suddenly becoming special needs parents. You heard about all kinds of struggles and questions and things that did not even seem related to each other, let alone made sense in and of themselves. And we cried out to God and we went to a counselor and we prayed together and we tried to figure out what do, what do we do next, all the way up until there was an initial invitation to Vietnam in 2014. Fast forward to now when we see God working in all of the ways that he is working and I'm not just talking about over there I'm talking about the hearts of people right in front of me that you believed John 3:16 your whole life but it's been the Vietnamese that have taught you how to love the world the way God loves it where did all that come from 
It came from all these things that we couldn't figure out. And, and over about the last year, for the two of us, every bit of that has come together in a way that's completely blown our minds. It took 18 years. 18 years. God is good. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Do you believe that his heart is for you? Habakkuk tells you, if that's the case, continue to live in righteous faith. You're going to walk out of here in just a few minutes with no more answers than you had coming in. That's the great thing about being a pastor. If I was a car mechanic, I'd never get paid. What's wrong with the car? I don't know. That'll be $900, right? Yeah, you're not going to go to that guy, that guy very long. To a pastor, it's like, yeah, I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, but I'm still getting paid like a week from Monday. It's great. It's a great gig, I'm telling you. All of, that, all of our faith is about that, though, is it not? How can I trust him? Whatever you're going through right now, do you trust the heart of God? If you answer that question in the affirmative, it is evidenced in this. The righteous live by faith. Don't ever be afraid to ask him questions. Don't ever be afraid of your doubts. But trust his heart. Father, Thank you for an ancient message that puts forward to us eternal lessons that never get old and never die. And Lord, may our hearts sync up with your own. I pray as we consider how we're going to respond to this message, Lord Jesus, that you would convict hearts and minds, that you would draw us to yourself. I pray for those who are tormented by questions, Lord, that you would drive them not away from the questions, but even deeper into them until they come to a place where they trust your heart, where they trust that you are good. And then, Lord, use them in that posture in more powerful ways than they ever thought possible. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.